it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, August 4th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday. Thank you for listening. If you don't know me or you're just getting accustomed to the program, welcome. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. On tap today, Katie Pavlich, Katie McFarland, Will Kane, and Larry Kudlow. Plus so much more. You do not want to miss a minute of the show. If you happen to miss any of it live, we have a podcast. It is free on demand every day. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Everything right there. GuyBensonShow.com, or you can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We begin the show here with a Fox News alert. The Biden administration has now officially declared monkeypox to be a public health emergency as cases have been doubling, I read, roughly every seven to eight days. We talked about monkeypox a little bit last week and some of the debates around stigma and what is fair to say and what the role of public health officials ought to be. I think the role should be to communicate clearly and accurately and not worry about political considerations or political correctness. But there's a lot of confusion out there around monkeypox because people don't want to stigmatize the LGBT community. I'm a member of that community, so I think I can talk about this a little bit. Like, oh, we don't want to make it a gay disease. I understand that anyone can get it. If you come in contact with a lesion, skin to skin contact, that's true. It's not only gay men or bisexual men or men who have sex with men at risk. But if you look at the numbers, overwhelmingly, that is who's at risk, which is why the vaccine, which is extremely scarce, more on that in a moment, is being rightly limited to people in a pretty narrow category. And I don't think that it's wrong to simply tell the truth about that, to prioritize care and vigilance for certain people and not freak out a bunch of other people. That seems sensible to me. Now, I will tell you, I was very angry about this earlier today, and I still am. And I decided to lead with this because let me say this as succinctly and bluntly as I can. The Biden administration is blowing it on monkeypox. This is a guy who sat in his basement and promised to defeat the virus and end the virus on COVID. We can talk more about that later if we want to. And now on his watch, another public health emergency has emerged. Not his fault. I'm not a hack. I'm not going to blame Biden or his team for this type of virus coming to the fore and spreading. What I will blame them for is abject incompetence in responding to it. And we have example after example piling up. And I think if this were a Republican administration screwing up this badly over and over again on a public health issue, 
it would be a much bigger story than it is, especially given the fact that it is overwhelmingly targeting gay and bisexual people. You can almost imagine what the outcry would sound like and look like. You'd have activists. You'd have the media. You'd have Democrats. This administration doesn't care about gay people. They don't care about our lives. They don't prioritize us. This is callous disregard. This is dereliction. This is bigotry. This is what modern bigotry looks like, right? That is what they would be saying if exactly this set of facts applied to the other political party. But I think because Biden and team are Democrats, a lot of the critiques are muted or non-existent. You're hearing it from some people. Because it is a real and acute problem and a growing problem, there's a way to stop the problem, and Team Biden is blowing it. And they've been blowing it for weeks. And if all the other gatekeepers of truth and the firefighters of media aren't going to level with you about that, we will. I will. Last week when we talked about this, I mentioned this New York Post story from early July. Here's a snippet. The White House is allowing red tape to snarl delivery of a million monkeypox vaccine doses currently stuck at the manufacturing plant in Denmark. The U.S. government spent at least two billion dollars, our money, taxpayer money, two billion plus developing and manufacturing the vaccine for the national stockpile. However, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and this administration has refused to import the shots, a million of them after it failed to inspect the plant and then refused to accept the inspection results from the EU's regulatory arm, which deemed the facility safe. So there's a million shots that we developed and paid for sitting in Denmark. This was as of early last month. And FDA couldn't be bothered, apparently, dropped the ball, couldn't get its act together to inspect the facility, the warehouse, whatever it is, the plant. So because of the red tape and, you know, all the paperwork, oh, I guess we'll just have to leave those doses there. And the EU said, actually, we'll do the inspection. It is safe. These shots are going into arms of European men. And our administration said, no, not good enough. This is what bureaucracy looks like and failure. So that was a month ago. Here's a story from The Washington Post this week. Don't expect America's shortage of monkeypox vaccine to ease anytime soon. On Saturday, The Washington Post reported there is currently only enough supply of the two-dose monkeypox vaccine to fully vaccinate about one-third of the gay and bisexual men in the U.S. who are considered highest risk for the virus. And listen to this. More doses aren't aren't expected to arrive in the United States until at least October. So months from now, there are now over 6,000 confirmed cases in the United States, and there's been exponential growth, and we don't have nearly enough vaccine doses. And the next batch of doses apparently isn't going to arrive in the United States, despite all the money that we have paid as taxpayers to develop this. It's not going to arrive until at least October which experts fear may give the virus all the time it needs to become permanently established in the country, i.e. endemic. If the government 
was operating at any level of competence and had prioritized this, we wouldn't be necessarily talking about this becoming permanently established monkeypox as, I would say, effectively an STD that also can be transmitted other ways in the United States. If we had gotten the return on our investment in a successful vaccine that was then administered properly by a government that wasn't filled with absolute incompetence, we could be having a very different conversation, but we're not. Public health authorities have already begun to ration the vaccine by withholding the second dose. Remember with COVID, you got the first shot, unless it was J&J. You got the first shot, then you went home for a couple weeks and you came back to get the second one to boost up the, uh, the effectiveness, the efficacy as much as possible. Same drill here on monkeypox, but they have so few doses, they have delayed indefinitely the second shot. Just to give out as many first shots as possible, this is rationing. Pitiful. We are the richest, most powerful country on Earth. Our government has spent billions of our dollars developing this vaccine. And because of their fault, the people who need it can't get it, many of them. And I I just come back to the point. If this set of facts were happening under a Republican right now, the motives would be questioned at a very high decibel. They would be called the face of modern hate. They don't care about this population of people. It would be a much larger scandal than it is. But the scandal is what it is. There just happens to be parentheses D next to the name. So it's all sort of still whispered about for the most part. Then comes this story from the New York Times. Wait for this. The shortage of vaccines to combat a fast growing monkeypox outbreak was caused in part by the Department of Health and Human Services failing early on to ask that bulk stocks of the vaccine it already owned be bottled for distribution, according to multiple administration officials. So we had the vaccine. We paid for it. It was ours. And HHS in the Biden administration forgot to ask for it to be bottled so it can be sent to the United States and injected into arms. By the time the federal government placed its orders, the vaccine's Denmark-based manufacturer, Bavarian Nordic, had booked other clients and was unable to do the work for months. To speed up deliveries, the government is now scrambling. How often are they scrambling? Scrambling in Afghanistan, scrambling on inflation, scrambling on baby formula, just scrambling all over the place because of their own failures. Well, here they are scrambling again to find another firm to take over some of the bottling and capping and labeling of the frozen bulk vaccine that is being stored in large plastic bags outside of Copenhagen. Because that final manufacturing phase, known as fill and finish, is highly specialized, experts estimate it will take another company at least three months to gear up. August, September, October, we're looking to maybe get into November. One more detail from this story in the New York Times. Health and Human Services, this is the Biden administration, also miscalculated the need for vaccines so badly that in May, late May, they allowed this company to deliver about 215,000 fully finished doses that the federal government had already bought 
to European countries instead of holding them for the U.S. So they didn't do their inspection and wouldn't take the EU inspectors. So that was a million doses sitting over in Europe. Then there were 215,000 fully ready doses that the U.S. government and Biden's team just said, we don't need them. You know what? Give them to Europe. It's fine. Now we have this acute crisis where there is they're calling it a cliff, a vaccine cliff. They will not have enough vaccine for the population that needs it the most. Just they won't won't come close. And we'll have to wait for months as monkeypox as monkeypox grows and spreads and proliferates. And then a bunch of other vaccine that they had ready, they forgot to ask for it to get bottled and labeled. And now they're just casting around, oh, can anyone do this? And the process is going to take months to do that. Absolutely pathetic and outrageous. Now, a lot of the failure falls on the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. I would like to remind you who is in charge of that cabinet agency. A man named Javier Becerra. We were very critical of this pick at the time. Becerra is a lawyer and a lifelong career politician. He has been in some office, political office, since I was five. I'm in my mid to late 30s now. Since I was in kindergarten, this guy's been some legislature. He was attorney general in California. He's a lawyer by training and a politician by career. Zero public health experience or expertise. None. It would be outrageous to put someone with that experience or lack thereof that resume in this position as the health minister of the United States at any point. Under any circumstances, but in the middle of a global pandemic, that's Biden ran on the pandemic. This is the whole thing. We're going to kill and shut down the virus, unlike Trump. Then he comes in and puts in a health secretary with no experience in health, public health or otherwise. None. The guy was known for persecuting nuns and pro-life groups in California. That's his big claim to fame, Javier Becerra. So why was he picked? In the middle of a pandemic, this man, CNBC reported at the time, late 2020, Biden's selection of Becerra comes amid calls from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus for the president-elect to include more Hispanics among his cabinet picks. Biden has made diversity a central value of his incoming administration. Becerra would be the first Latino to lead the department. So the woke, identity-fixated, obsessed leftists were saying this cabinet needs to be more diverse. We need more brown people. This is how they talk about people, literally by their skin color. We need more brown people in the cabinet. And Biden's like, go find someone with a Latin X last name and put him in charge of the health department. What could go wrong? So they found, I guess, the closest Latin X person to use their ridiculous term that they could find with no expertise, and they put him in charge of HHS. How's that working out? How's that competence going for the American people? It wasn't just Biden who named him. It was the Senate Democrats who confirmed him. That's Javier Becerra, our health secretary, failing during COVID, no experience whatsoever. Now there's another big problem on his watch, and his administration is asleep at the switch. His agency is failing and flailing badly. The LGBT community 
is in the crosshairs of this disease. And this is what's happening. Mistake after failure after screw-up. But, hey, at least the White House projected rainbow colors onto the White House during Pride Month. Doesn't that make you feel better? The signaling was very strong about their support when it comes to helping the well-being and the health of gay and bisexual men in this country with this mess on our hands. They're just sort of like, oops, I guess we got that one wrong again with our health secretary who has no business being in that position. It is absolutely outrageous, and you know and I know that this would be a much bigger story and would be treated as the scandal that it is under slightly different circumstances. But the reality is what it is. I'm Guy Benson. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. I mentioned COVID during my opening monologue. We had this HHS Secretary uh, Secretary Javier Becerra with no qualifications to be in the job. He was put there in the middle of a pandemic. And we have hundreds of thousands of deaths in America from or with COVID since Biden took office. Now, do I blame Biden and Becerra for those deaths? More deaths, by the way, than happened on Trump's watch? I don't. Because I'm not a hack, I'm not dishonest, and I'm also not Joe Biden. Remember this? Cut 16 from the 2020 campaign? 220,000 Americans dead. You hear nothing else I say tonight. Hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I take no responsibility initially, anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. When Biden took office, the death toll was about 400,000. It's now over a million. And he was handed three vaccines when he took office with hundreds of thousands of shots going into arms every single day. That's what he inherited. And since then, hundreds of thousands of people have died. More than 600,000 people have died. By his own standard, he should not remain president of the United States. 
and putting someone, a career politician, lawyer, non-doctor, non-health expert in charge of HHS in the middle of all of it, it's just completely indefensible and just crickets from most people in the media on any of it. I'm not done. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. And I've been using this monkeypox debacle as a jumping off point to once again shine the spotlight on Joe Biden and his decision to appoint Javier Becerra as our health secretary. Back in the middle of the pandemic, he nominated Becerra, who's a lawyer and a politician. Nothing on the public health front. Put him in charge of the health bureaucracy of the federal government during COVID. And now they are screwing up badly on monkeypox, which is not terribly troubling to most Americans who aren't at very high risk. But to my community, it is much more concerning. And there's not enough vaccine to go around, not because it didn't exist or not because, you know, this was a novel virus, but because of verifiable government failures. And maybe when you put someone in a very important job as a diversity hire, you get what you deserve. The problem is you're playing with people's wellness, their health, their lives. Don't take my word for it. I'm not alleging that Becerra is a diversity hire. It was widely reported. They were under pressure to get more Hispanics in the cabinet in positions. They're like, all right, grab that congressman and put him in there. He was Attorney General of California. He was a congressman, then Attorney General of California, fighting nuns in court to try to force them to violate their conscience, persecuting pro-life organizations, trying to force them to advertise for abortion, persecuting investigative journalists who shone the spotlight on certain special interests that the California government wanted to protect, like the abortion lobby. That's what Javier Becerra was up to. In California, And because I guess of his last name and the color of his skin, they're like, let's put him in charge of health care in the country with no experience. And there were virtually no questions asked about that at the time. And I think what the Biden team wanted was to get a bunch of hosannas about having the most diverse cabinet of all time. That was the focus. And by the way, I just reject this idea that you can't find an eminently qualified Hispanic person in this position. They just didn't really try that hard. They just wanted to check a box. And if you Google it, like most diverse cabinet, Biden diversity, those types of keywords, you will find a bunch of media outlets clapping along like trained seals because that's what Biden wanted to highlight. Diversity. I think diversity and qualifications, diversity and excellence are not mutually exclusive. But when you do it sloppily, with no interest in the important part of it, and it's only about identity, you end up with someone like Javier Becerra running HHS 
and botching badly this crisis, this growing crisis. But, hey, they got their news cycle that they wanted back in late 2020 and early 2021. Look at the diversity. Not sure how that helps someone who's been exposed to monkeypox who can't find a vaccine or people who might have to wait until October or beyond to get vaccine, especially gay and bisexual men. But that's why Becerra got the job. There's no real argument around that. And yet that's the reality. It's the reality that happened, and it got almost no scrutiny because, at the time at least, the media was in the tank for Biden and the new administration. Obviously, they're all running away from Biden at this point. Again, imagine, and I, I know it's like the lowest form of political commentary to say, can you imagine if it were a Republican? But sometimes it's just so glaring right in your face. Same thing. If Donald Trump had put some woefully unqualified person in charge of a crucially important portfolio in the middle of a national crisis, then there was a related type of crisis down the line, and this person screwed that thing up too, especially if it was at least appearing to be at the expense of a marginalized community, I think we might be hearing about that very specifically and very loudly from a lot of people who are biting their tongues or averting their eyes right now. And by the way, Becerra, we brought you on this show, I think it was earlier this year, early 2022, there was a big story written in the Washington Post about the discontent at the White House with Becerra's job performance, how he was like this invisible secretary who wasn't showing up, wasn't doing his job properly, wasn't engaged, maybe because he didn't know what the hell he was doing. Because he wouldn't. Why would he? He was a lawyer and politician. Not someone equipped to run a health bureaucracy for the biggest, most important government in, in the world. In the middle of a giant pandemic that had killed already by that point, by the point he was nominated, hundreds of thousands of Americans, with even more who have died since. But it was the White House then whispering to reporters, oh, we don't really like this guy. He's not really doing the job. Like, what do you expect? If failure after failure, he's not getting it done. It's blindingly obvious to everyone involved, even the people responsible for putting Becerra in there in the first place. They're throwing him under the bus again now on monkeypox. More anonymous quotes about how he's not getting it done. We are seven months, six or seven months removed from the last round of backbiting. And this man is still in that position on the job. They kept him around to screw up even more this time on monkeypox. Is that Becerra's fault or is that Biden and team's fault? And where's the accountability-minded media? I'm just curious. I'll just read a few more passages from this New York Times story that I read during the opening monologue. I gave you some of the details about how the Biden administration just let hundreds of thousands of doses go to Europeans. They're like, oh, we don't need it. Go ahead. Oops. Then there were a bunch of other doses that we had bought and paid for, and they forgot to get it bottled. So we'll have to wait till October or beyond to get it. Another oops. These are the people who believe that government are the solution to everything. All they want to do forever is expand the government, more and more government. And they can't even do the basics of their job properly. And I guarantee you, 
if this becomes a bigger problem, if they can't avoid this further, if people start to wake up and actually point fingers the way I'm doing, I guarantee you part of their excuse is going to be not enough funding. Right, that's always there. We just need more money. Give us more money and more power, even though the mistakes are just straight-up incompetence, human error. Becerra's been out there putting out press releases and showing up at events about abortion because that's what he really cares about, not doing the job that should be the actual gig, for which he is absolutely unqualified and always has been. So the Times reports the obstacles to filling and finishing these vials of vaccine follow other missteps that have limited vaccine supply. The United States once had some 20 million doses in a national stockpile, but failed to replenish them as they expired, letting the supply dwindle to almost nothing, which is what we did on PPE, right? During COVID, remember that? That's the same mistakes over and over again. There's a testing problem with monkeypox. That sounds familiar. I guess we just don't learn anything in this country, at least the people in charge. Just dangerously behind the curve constantly. The government also owns the equivalent of about 16.5 million doses of bulk vaccine produced and stored by Bavaria Nordic. By the time the health agency ordered 500,000 doses worth, To be vialed in June, other countries with outbreaks had submitted their own orders, and the earliest delivery date to the United States was October. Another 110,000 doses for European nations soon followed. When the U.S. came back with two more orders of 2.5 million doses each, July 1st and July 15th, the bulk could only be delivered next year. You snooze, you lose. We all paid for this, but we're not getting it. Because the government just can't do the basics of its job in this administration. Some critics blame a failure of leadership at HHS, saying the department secretary, here he is, Javier Becerra, has taken a hands-off approach to an increasingly serious situation. That sounds so unlike him. No, it's the exact attack they've been making against him from within for half a year. And he just floats right along. Biden never holds anyone accountable. He never fires anyone. On and on we go here. His department oversees all of this stuff. And now finally today they're like, oh, we're going to declare this an emergency, a public health emergency. Great. That's the headline that they'll get. Maybe that will stave off some criticism for a little while. Look, we're doing something. The things that they should have been doing were proactive and they didn't. And people are going to suffer as a result for months on end. Some federal officials, this is the time story say the health department was slow to submit its orders for vaccine-related work because officials at BARDA argued that they were short on funds. Here we go. Surprise. Short on funds. But when the demand for vaccines became an outcry, and that's just starting, the agency found the money to pay for for 5 million more doses to be vial. Oh, they didn't have the money until they did because the PR started to get bad. They react to headlines and anger on social media as opposed to being adults and knowing how to do their job properly. And by the time they finally snap to it and do something, it's too late. And we have to wait for months, maybe into next year for some of this stuff. Just a bang up job. Some experts say it can take as long as six to nine months for a plant to gear up to handle this type of vaccine.
Bravo. Bravo to everyone involved. Where's Secretary Pete on this for the LGBT community, by the way? I mean, he's just handling his stuff great at transportation, I'm sure. Javier Becerra, no expertise, no qualifications, still on the job. And then there's just Grandpa Joe providing, presiding rather over the whole thing. An absolute mess. And at least for now, the outrage and the blame assignment has been relatively scant, and I think we know why. It's not based on the job performance, that's for sure. The Guy Benson Show returns after this with Katie Pavlich next. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Katie Pavlich. You might recognize me from my day job, but I've been bagging big game with my dad since I was 10. So taking you to the most decked out hunting lodges in America, that's where my two worlds collide. It's time for another weekend at the lodge. Cool, gentlemen, rush. Luxury Hunting Lodges of America, streaming now on Fox Nation. Sign up at foxnation.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show, and you just heard it there. A new show on Fox Nation. You can sign up at foxnation.com. Luxury Hunting Lodges of America, hosted by my friend and colleague, Katie Pavlich. And Katie, this looks, first of all, right up your alley. Very fun. Very cool. What can you tell folks about this new show at Fox Nation? Hey, Guy. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it. Of course. So to talk about the news of the day in politics, but I was able to get away for four different weekends in different parts of the country to uh, showcase these lodges, to get to know the wildlife, the people, the owners of these places. So it's, you know, we went to a bunch of different spots to figure out, you know, what was interesting and unique about each different location. We were in Louisiana, Oregon, Wyoming, Montana, and it was just really great for me because, as you know, I grew up hunting and camping with my family, and uh, this was a great opportunity to kind of push together, you know, kind of the glamping aspect of staying in a nice luxury lodge. And if, you know, you're not into the outdoor part of it, maybe you'd rather stay inside. You can do cooking lessons or go to the spa. Or if you want to get get out and do some ice fishing or some horseback riding, maybe some alligator hunting, uh, you can do that. So it was just a really great time and opportunity, and I loved it. And it was nice to be able to highlight the unique conservation efforts each one of these lodges and their owners have Put into their property, you know, their private lands. Um, the, the place we went to in Wyoming is called Three Forks Ranch, and it's actually the largest private restoration of a river in the history of the country. So it was just really interesting to see all the different aspects of these places that offer wonderful vacations for families. And although they are grandiose, they are very welcoming and uh, enjoy having people back time and time again. Well, you should bring me next time, and you can do all the outdoor stuff, and I will happily be at the spa and at the bar. And maybe maybe a cooking class doesn't sound too bad. I think that's a very fair division of labor, if you will, on our next uh, yeah. joint vacation at one of these places. How did you pick these four locations? Because there's beautiful spots all over the country. How do you narrow it down to these four? Well, I think it was really difficult. So I had a great team of producers who scoured the country for the four best places we could go to for the first season, hopefully crossing our fingers that maybe there'll be a second one. Um, but we really wanted to take a look at different parts of the country and different, you know, 
aspects of these lodges. So they're all very different from each other. You know, Louisiana was very different from Oregon. Louisiana was in a swamp, uh, had a different kind of Cajun history. Uh, we were hunting alligators, which are overpopulated in that area, whereas in Highland Hills, we were hunting on property that used to be used for farming and agriculture and now is used for upland bird hunting. And they've restored the property there for that use. And they work with the state uh, to kind of manage, you know, the populations there. So it really was just a matter of finding a, a place that had a luxury lodge with these amazing accommodations for people who may not be necessarily hunters, um, but also to accommodate those who are in families or people like to do different things. So lots of different outdoor activities. You know, in Louisiana, we weren't just alligator hunting. We got to take a sunset cruise and have a nice glass of wine while the sunset where the sun went down. So all these different places are, you know, in the theme, obviously, of luxury lodging and outdoor lifestyle. Uh, but each one is, is different enough from each other that people will be interested in watching them all. You made a lot of cool memories during the process of making this show for Fox Nation. Is there one thing that comes to mind? It doesn't have to be like the top thing, but one interaction or one adventure that you had over the course of this show that you think people might find intriguing? Well, you'll, you'll see in the Wyoming episode, the way that we had to film it, it was, it was pretty cold. And if you look at what I'm wearing, you'll notice that right before we went out, out, out ice fishing, I have on like a headband, a beanie, and then earmuffs over my ears. And then when we're out, you know, actually going ice fishing, our guide, who was just this amazing woman, she does have gloves on. So I felt like kind of like a wimp a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you are yeah. rarely the yeah. wimpy person involved, but this woman sounds pretty <laughs> hardcore. She was pretty hardcore. So there were just there were a lot of amazing moments, and I had a great team, great production crew, um, and we really got to travel to a lot of these different places. And talking to the owners, especially, was really uh, special for me to hear about how they were able to obtain these dream properties that they really wanted for their entire lives, and now they've spent so much time, you know, rehabbing the land and respecting the wildlife. Oh, yeah. And all that kind of thing, engaging in real well, conservation that is lots of the time demonized or not spoken about enough. No, it looks really cool, and they're plugging the hell out of it on Fox News Channel, which is awesome to see. It's Fox Nation. You can get it exclusively there. Sign up if you aren't already a subscriber. Sign up there at foxnation.com. And, Katie, at some point we're going to have to talk about how you were able to successfully pitch this because I have a few ideas of my own, like perhaps <laughs> America's most opulent country clubs. Like, I think I could very well handle that assignment or like the best first class airplane seats in the world with Guy Benson. I'm, yeah, I'm workshopping a few things. <laughs> we'll have to talk. Let's talk offline. That's Katie Pavlich. Check out Luxury Hunting Lodges of America exclusively at Fox Nation. When we come back, another hour of the Guy Benson show, KT McFarland on foreign policy, plus Will Kane and more straight ahead. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Hour two out of three now underway on the Guy Benson Show between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website for the free podcast every day. Still to come, Will Kane later this hour, Larry Kudlow in the next hour. 
first, a Fox News alert. The Dow closing down 85 points today, ending at 32,726. With me now is KT McFarland, former Trump deputy national security advisor, author of the book Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. She has served under four presidential administrations. KT, always great to have you here. Always a pleasure and an honor for me, too, Guy. I wanted to start with your reaction to the vote in the U.S. Senate yesterday to greenlight the addition of Sweden and Finland into NATO. The vote was 95 to 1. Your thoughts on that move and NATO broadly? Great move. We should encourage those two countries to join NATO. It'll strengthen the NATO alliance, with which a year ago was kind of purposeless and drifting. But now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's gotten Europe to wake up to the threat posed by Russia. So I think that's all good. On the subject of Russia, I see that they are backing the Chinese over Taiwan and that whole controversy. Not exactly surprising, but I wonder what you make of that alliance, the Russia-Chinese alliance, which has been a little bit strained, especially over Ukraine. But now with the speaker's trip to Taiwan, maybe this is an opportunity for the authoritarians to flock together again? Yeah, you know, the single biggest threat the United States faces is not just China alone, but China and Russia in combination. And for the last, well, really since the end of World War II, our objective in the United States has to been to prevent a Sino-Soviet and now Sino-Russian alliance. Because those two together, and especially in modern times, where it's Chinese money, Chinese technology, married up to Russian weapons and Russian natural resources— Um, It really makes it a a pretty difficult and formidable enemy for the United States to stand up to um, on all fields unless we have a strong alliance system in Europe and in Asia. Where do you come down on Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan? I saw a number of conservatives and Republicans saying it's exactly the right thing to do, good for her. We can't let Beijing and the CCP dictate who can go where. There were other people on both sides of the aisle saying maybe this wasn't the best move at this point in time. What really was the point of this? Uh, Do you have a strong feeling one way or another? Yeah, I think it's the right move, but not the right time. Because, it, you know, it's one thing to make these symbolic gestures and Nancy Pelosi gets a terrific photo op. And then the Democrats can kind of change the conversation away from the cultural wars and the inflation and the economic disaster we're facing. But what does this do? I mean, what what are they doing to back up these deeds? Are they these words? Are they doing anything? No. I mean, what the United States needs to do right now, we have to regain our technological lead against China. In other words, reinvest in research and development of high tech stuff. We're not doing that. We haven't done it for the well. We certainly haven't done it um, in the last year. And even prior to that, we've really let it drift since the 1990s. Number two, we need to. We need to make sure that we have a supply chain that works. You know, right now, China supplies 90 percent of American antibiotics. If they decide, oh, well, we're going to we're going to really screw the Americans over this, we could have no antibiotics for a very long period of time. And then finally, militarily, you know, the Pentagon war games, conflicts with major countries and major conflicts all around the world. And when they war game the Russia, China or even just China, U.S., we don't win that conflict where we come close to being a draw to superpowers. The Chinese have spent the last 20 years 
rebuilding or building a modern society, a modern technology, and a modern military. We've squandered trillions in these forever wars in the Middle East. And as a result, we've cut defense spending. We've cut research wait, wait. and development. KT, sorry, I just I want to make sure that I heard you properly there. Did you say that when the U.S. military has done these hypothetical war games in a U.S. versus Russia – or sorry, a U.S. versus China war, God forbid – under mm-hmm. the current circumstances in those war games, we lose? Well, we certainly don't win unconditionally. Um, and in most of the cases, we lose. If there's a Chinese-Russian war, or sorry, a Chinese-American war over Taiwan, we don't win. Uh, the Chinese have spent a lot of money developing, for example, hypersonic glide weapons. We don't have any defense against that. They've developed missiles that can attack U.S. Carriers um, in the South China Sea and the Pacific, ours may not survive. The Chinese have done an awful lot of things in the last 20 years. They built up military bases on these islands in the South China Sea to extend the ability of China to have military engagements, naval engagements against the West. This is really serious stuff. So I'm all for poking the, the eye of the dragon, but let's have something behind it because the Chinese will retaliate. They can't ignore this. I mean, they can't just make a lot of statements and hope that everybody forgets. For their own domestic political reasons, Xi Jinping has to respond. He has to retaliate. Well, they're doing these exercises, right, these these five yeah. live-fire exercises all around Taiwan, you know, the, the location of each of them. It's not subtle. What's the demonstration there? The show of force? Well, yeah, show of force. And to say anytime China wants, China can basically encircle Taiwan and blockade Taiwan from any international trade. Now, that's obviously not so great for Taiwan, but it's really bad for us because we in the West, we get something like 75 percent of the chips that go into all modern electronics, everything from cell phones to cars to your refrigerator. All that stuff is manufactured in Taiwan. And so that could be an international and global crisis for the world if if that talk about a supply chain that would be endangering you know, not only the world, but certainly American, any American manufacturing or any American modern electronics. So do you think the CHIPS Act was the right thing? I know it had some flaws. Yeah. It was very expensive. Yeah, I do think it was the right thing. I'd like to see a whole lot more of it. So the CHIPS Act was – in America, we invent and we develop the prototype for great chips. We're still the best in the world. We don't make them here, though. And so by making them someplace else, someplace else that might be vulnerable to any kind of a trade embargo or a supply chain glitch, whether it's a real glitch or it's a, a fake glitch that the Chinese are using as an excuse, that really that really has massive implications on our technology and, and our, our economy. You know, China makes, for example, China, not Taiwan, China makes 90 percent of American antibiotics. What happens if they decide, you know, no, thank you, America, our punishment to you is, we're not going to sell you antibiotics. We're going to sell them somewhere else. When President Trump criticized initially, criticized China for the, um, for the outbreak of, of COVID and their response and their unwillingness to share the origins of it, you know what they did? They called the White House and they said, hey, we're going to stop antibiotics. We're going to stop any um, ampicillin, um, amoxicillin, all the cillins. We're going to just stop that for the United States for a year unless you stop criticizing us. So this is high-stakes stuff, and I do think the Chinese— Well, it seems crazy. KT, it seems crazy. Like the the Chinese government, the CCP, obviously does not have our best interests at heart, to put it as mildly as possible. They could become a full-blown enemy in the future. They want to uproot us as the global superpower. They have a massive military. 
They are increasingly bellicose. For us to rely on them for anything essential in this country for our well-being uh, is just madness at this point. Sure, of course it is, but we're not doing anything about it. I mean, even things like so, the Chinese steal a lot of technology from American corporations and American yes. scientists. We develop yeah. the stuff, they steal it. Um, the Biden administration recently dismantled the organization in the U.S. government that Trump set up to catch spies because they thought, well, it would be too racist, it's too this, it's too that. So they dismantled the whole unit. We're not looking for Chinese spies anymore. There are a whole lot of things that are, are really significant that the, the Washington – and I'm not saying it's just Biden. It's both political parties. They've they've taken their eye off the ball for 20 years while we fought the forever wars. They've not reinvested in American technology. They've not rebuilt the American military. And meanwhile, China has done all of these things and now is in a position which they were not in 10 years ago. They certainly weren't in 20 years ago. They're now in a position to call our bluff. Now, I do not want to be in that position. That's why I think it's critical that the United States – reinvest in its military, fixes the supply chain, and absolutely regains the technological lead. Katie McFarland, we saw the news this week of Ayman al-Zawahiri, at the time of 9-11, number two to bin Laden, and he's been the leader of al-Qaeda for a while. We finally got him, drone strike from the CIA in Kabul, Afghanistan. He is now gone. Uh, very good news, obviously. It's been a long time coming. Your thoughts on that killing the CIA, finally getting their man in that case, and the significance that he was in Kabul? A couple of things. One, you know, I rarely say great things about the Biden administration, but I, I compliment them on making the decision to go ahead with this kill. I also compliment the American military to pull it off surgically. They got Zawahiri, but they didn't get any innocent civilians, not that there would have been any innocent ones around him, but it was a surgical strike. And I compliment the American intelligence community for finding him and tracking him 20 years later. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, he was in a safe house very near the American embassy, and he was in a house that belongs to one of the leading bad guy tribes in Afghanistan. So al-Qaeda and Afghan and the Taliban government clearly have good ties and close ties to each other. Now, if they just want to kill each other, frankly, I, I think go at it, as long as they don't threaten and challenge the United States. I think their ability to challenge the United States on our homeland is greatly decreased, even with Katie this. McFarlane is the former Deputy National Security Advisor under President Trump, one of four U.S. presidents that she has served. Her book is titled Revolution. Katie, always good to have you here. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, and it's a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. It's the Guy Benson Show. A lot more to get to, more on Afghanistan and the legacy of our withdrawal as soon as we come back. A story that is angering that I'll share with you next on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We are approaching the one-year anniversary of the fiasco and the national disgrace that was the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. You might have agreed with the policy of getting out. You might have disagreed with the way that we did it without leaving at least some residual force behind, as a lot of the experts and generals had suggested. Instead, we all remember what happened. And we can recall the fallout. It was immediate. It was humiliating. It was infuriating. It was gut-wrenching. It was a stain on our national pride. And major promises made by 
Joe Biden, the president, the commander in chief. This would be done smartly and smoothly in an orderly fashion. And we would get every American out and all the allies that we had promised safe passage and security. We would get them out, too. He made all those promises and they all went up in smoke immediately. We left billions of dollars of military equipment behind to fall into the hands of terrorists. And we learned and were reminded again this week that the Taliban, a terrorist organization, once again has started harboring al-Qaeda. Fortunately, we killed al-Zawahiri in a drone strike. But if he was feeling comfortable to hang out sort of openly at a house in Kabul, the reestablishment of multiple toxic terrorist elements in that country is confirmed. I think Vladimir Putin was watching what we did there. I think Chairman Xi was watching what we did in Afghanistan. And also just the gaslighting and lies and callousness of Joe Biden and his administration and the spin that they try to put on the whole thing. An absolute debacle with more than a dozen U.S. troops murdered during the chaos. You remember that. Just abject humiliation and betrayal day after day. Well, here we are in August of 2022. NBC News has a story headlined fear, comma, hiding and frustration for Afghans left behind one year after U.S. evacuation. So I think a lot of Americans are still angry about what happened. There's still a very bitter taste. But it's not a waking nightmare every day, as it has been for a year for a lot of these people. Here's how the story begins. One year has now passed since former Army Captain Jeff Trammell began exchanging text messages in the middle of the night with his one-time Afghan interpreter, desperate to get him and his family on one of the last flights out of Kabul as the U.S. withdrew and the Taliban took control of the country. Quote, cover your daughters and stay in line, he instructed. In the months since, the Department of Homeland Security has resettled more than 80,000 Afghan refugees, the vast majority of whom escaped before the end of the U.S. withdrawal in September of 2021. But tens of thousands who wanted to leave were left behind. Trammell's interpreter is still in hiding, too afraid to step outside for fear that he and his family will be found and executed by the Taliban. Quote, after Americans left Afghanistan, I passed one year of my life like a prisoner. No work, no food, Trammell's interpreter told NBC News. At night, the family goes to their rooftop to get their only breath of fresh air for the day. Trammell says this interpreter has passed every step of the special immigrant visa process that would allow him to be evacuated to the U.S. And the final step he needs is to complete an interview at an American embassy. The problem is there is no embassy in Afghanistan because we just pulled everyone out at the drop of a hat, everyone. And those left behind were left to fend for themselves. And there were some private organizations, people with honor, who tried to keep at least some of our commitment. And in some cases, they were actually blocked or stymied or not helped by the U.S. government and the Biden administration. For Afghans who helped American forces, NBC reports, but were left behind after the evacuation, the past year has been marked by fear, hiding, and frustration as prospects of securing a visa, let alone a flight act, have dwindled. 
let alone a flight out, have dwindled. This continues to be the reality for thousands of people we promised we would keep safe. This was a sacred pledge that the United States made, the sacred honor of the United States at stake in the minds of these people who put everything on the line to help us. We were making war in their country. We were trying to bring about a better future for Afghanistan while not allowing terrorists to have a safe harbor in that country, which is how we got 9-11. Now it looks like we have backslid into terrorists running that country, obviously. And the people who put themselves and their families at great risk and were promised every step of the way, if things get really bad, you're one of us, we're going to help you. Thousands of them remain in this situation a year later. Absolutely disgraceful. The Biden administration would like you to forget about this. They almost never talk about it ever publicly, even though they also try to pretend like it's a great success. They know it's not. On this show, we promised that we would not drop the issue. And as we approach that one year mark, we are going to continue to raise this. A very dark chapter for the country and something that I think voters need to keep in mind as they head to the polls in November. Is this the type of thing that we want America to represent? Is this what the word of the United States of America ought to mean? I know my answer. The Guy Benson Show returns after this. Will Kane will join us in studio from New York next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. And then, of course, around the clock for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, for all of that information. And with us now is Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, Saturday and Sunday. Also host of the Will Kane Podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Will, always great to talk to you. What is up, Guy? A lot is up. I want to start on this note. I was for years an aspiring sports broadcaster. That was my goal, particularly to call baseball. I did the Cape Cod Baseball League for four summers, Big Ten Athletics at Northwestern. You spent a period of your career at ESPN. I would imagine, we paid tribute to him yesterday, I would imagine that you have some thoughts on the incredible legacy of Vin Scully, who died this week at the age of 94, having spent almost seven decades with the Dodgers organization. I have, I think, two thoughts that maybe represent something even larger than Vin Scully because Vin Scully represented something larger than himself. First, when it comes to baseball, baseball is itself a sport that is soaked in tradition. A voice like Vin Scully, a personality like Vin Scully, embodies that tradition. He's part of that tradition. And when you lose someone like Vin Scully, therefore, you lose something that you simply can't get back. It'll always be ingrained into the story of baseball, but losing him is like losing one of baseball's tradition. And then I would say secondarily, there are only so many voices like Vin Scully, and this is bigger than baseball. You know, whether or not that's John Madden in the NFL or Vern Lundquist or any of these voices that represent our national history and our childhood, our nostalgia, there are only so many of those voices, and I don't know, Guy, that we're replacing them. I don't know. Will my sons grow up and say, 
wow, the voice of Troy Aikman or Joe Buck in the same way that you and I might think of Keith Jackson when it comes to college football. I don't uh, know that we're replacing those mainstays, those those rare earth minerals when it comes to sports that we grew up with. Yeah, I felt that way about Bob Shepard, the longtime voice of Yankee Stadium with that just amazing presentation, totally unique. You instantly were transported to a place when you heard his voice and that was unique to me growing up as a Yankees fan. I think Vince Scully had a national profile to some extent, but especially to Dodgers Nation. I mean, he was absolutely beloved. And I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes you get focused on your nostalgia and your generation and you feel like it can't be replaced. And I'm not saying that Scully or any of those guys can be, but I think future sports fans will have their own people that they look back fondly on. You know, you mentioned Buck. You mentioned Aikman, sort of a sore spot at Fox since they went over uh, to ESPN recently. But those are voices that a lot of people have grown up listening to big games with those guys. So, you know, Jim Nance, another one at CBS. Bob Costas, maybe to some extent. There are voices and names out there. I'm not sure that they're comparable to Vin Scully because I'm not sure anyone exactly is comparable to Vin Scully. Yeah, I agree. I I think it's every generation who thinks theirs represents the golden era. And you're right to think the next generation will define their golden era. That being said, I don't know. I don't think you get back another Keith Jackson, another John Madden, another Vince Scully. Meanwhile, a sports-related story, this sentence in Russia, Brittany Griner, the women's basketball player, the American who's imprisoned over there, sentenced to nine years for cannabis possession and smuggling. This whole thing reeks It's obviously political. There's, I guess, some sort of offer on the table from the Biden administration to try to get her back, some kind of a swap. What do you make of this sentence that was handed down over in Russia and what's going on? And is the U.S. government doing enough to try to get her back? Well, the sentence is injustice. Nine and a half years for possession of what amounted to a very small amount of THC doesn't represent any common law sense of justice. I think there's so many different ways we can go with this guy. I think that when you are in a foreign country, you should be aware of the laws and the injustice of that Mm -hmm. foreign country. And therefore, Brittany Griner has some culpability in the injustice she is now experiencing. It's no less, though, an injustice that she's being used, as you point out correctly, as a political pawn. And now we're going to find out what the political price is for Brittany Griner. Interestingly, it might be, and I'm sure you know this, it was an interesting piece of trivia for me that it, it's the guy behind the movie, potentially, Lord of War, starring Nicolas Cage, where he played this arms dealer. He's potentially— Yeah, the Merchant of Death was the guy's nickname. Exactly, and he's yeah, potentially— Very, very different than, you know, a little bit of THC, right? That's right. not doesn't feel like a balanced deal if that's the swap. But he might be the trade ship that brings home Brittany Griner. And then there's the hypocrisy, and I think this is something that is appropriate to point out, and that is that Brittany Griner, not just as a symbol of American athletes, but Brittany Griner as an individual has criticized the American justice system and symbolically done so by kneeling during the American national anthem. And I think now she has probably had her eyes open to the fact the American justice system is a historical anomaly when it comes to justice across the globe. Most of the world operates like Russia with no due process or habeas corpus where everything is really largely 
political. And now I think I would hope she has some appreciation for a system of justice that is based upon eternal principles and codified in our documents. It's a lesson that doesn't seem to have resonated with LeBron James, as he said, I don't know that she'll want to come home after this. Right. And that's the exact well, opposite of what you'd want to take away, not the lesson you should take away. But in the United States of America, this simply doesn't happen. That is, unless you trespass on the Capitol on January 6th. Otherwise, you are availed of the principles of due process and habeas corpus and eternal systems and concepts of justice. Here is Griner apologizing in court. There's also video of her now literally behind bars, just apologizing, apologizing, apologizing. I don't know what else she can do. Obviously, she's staring down the barrel of almost a decade in a Russian prison. What a nightmare. Cut 18. Listen here. I want to apologize to my teammates, my club, Genka, the fans, and the city of UCAT for my mistake that I made and the embarrassment that I brought onto them. I made an honest mistake, and I hope that in your ruling that it doesn't end my life here. I know everybody keeps talking about political pawn and politics, but I hope that that is far from this courtroom. No. That's what she can hope in Russia, but it's still Russia, and perhaps you're right, Will. A more, a deeper appreciation might be developing in the recesses of her heart for what America actually stands for and what the justice system here really looks like, which is a global outlier in a lot of ways in a very exceptional and good way compared to what she has just gone through, that meat grinder over in Russia. Meanwhile, the comment that you referenced was on HBO. LeBron sort of in passing said this, cut 20. This was a couple weeks ago. Brittany Griner, she is in Russia. She's been there over 110 days. Now, how can she feel like America has her back? I would be feeling like, do I even want to go back to America? So (laughs) what was interesting about that, Will, we ripped him on this show. I mean, obviously, he felt LeBron felt the need to come out and clarify and kind of apologize, saying, no, 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 LOL, just kidding. I love America. That's not what I meant. He doesn't seem to back off very often, but I guess someone got in his ear and he realized he had gone too far with that one. Yeah, but, Guy, it's a mistake he continues to make. So here is really the most gratuitous way you can approach LeBron James. He's simply ignorant, and that's a fact. He's simply ignorant when it comes to global affairs, historical affairs, he doesn't know what he is talking about. Oh, he's very certain, though, Will. Well, that is a common position mm. today to, to elevate certainty over righteousness. Yeah, confident but, ignorance. Correct. But so I'm, I'm offering you up the most gratuitous way to view LeBron James, but I, I, as he continues to say the same or share the, roughly the same sentiment over and over, that he has this negative view of the United States of America, I'm feeling less forgiving. The country that's made him literally a billionaire is the one for which he holds criticism, not the country, for example, in, with China, that has contributed to his overall you know, bottom line, that has added to his wealth. He doesn't have criticism, and he will criticize you for your criticism of China, but he has seemingly never-ending criticism for the United States of America. I'm not sure ignorance is good enough of a courtesy to extend to LeBron James. Yeah, I mean, it's like at some point he knows what he's doing. He tried to get Daryl Morey punished by the NBA for simply standing up for democracy in Hong Kong because it threatened some people's bottom line around the NBA, their, their money flow, the cash flow. 
he tried to exact revenge. That was widely reported behind the scenes to get someone fired for their very, I'd say, basic political activism and a a very defensible, you would think, widely shared in America sentiment about democracy, but not to LeBron. But he also wants to paint the U.S. as this rotten, awful place in a lot of ways. It's been so unfair. There's so much injustice. They've made him, you know, one of the most famous people on the planet. We have. And one of the richest people in the United States. I mean, it's great for him. But there is an ingratitude, like a self-righteous ingratitude about the U.S. While he is very quick to condemn other people for all sorts of things, it's not a good look. And you're right. It's not one or two mistakes or unusual comments that seem stray and out of character. It seems actually quite in character, which is why his clarification, denial, apology on the Griner thing wasn't overly convincing to me. I think this is what he believes or at least what he feels like he needs to convey a lot of the time, this type of sentiment. And, and Guy, there's literally not another country on the planet that would have allowed LeBron James to become LeBron James. He could not have been a billionaire. Were he born in in Egypt, he could not have become the world's most famous basketball player. Were he born in Germany, he could not have become a billionaire who speaks freely. Were he born in China, there's literally not another country on the face of the planet where he could have become the man he is today with the wealth and the freedom that he enjoys. And yet this one singular experiment on the globe that allowed him to become LeBron James is the experiment for which he has the most disdain. Yeah, I think that obviously ticks off a lot of people. It's part of the reason why I don't watch the NBA, but not the whole reason. I want to shift here to electoral politics in just a moment, but we've got to take a break. Will Kane, my guest on The Guy Benson Show. More with Will after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane is my guest here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. And Will, I know you're a UT guy. Hook him. You're from Texas. Beto O'Rourke is running for governor of that state. And I know Democrats seem to be excited these days. They're buzzing to reporters. We're feeling increasingly confident, bullish. We think Beto might be able to beat Greg Abbott. I am very skeptical of that. But the guy raises money hand over fist. He was at an event this week, and he said something that was very reminiscent of something that we heard just across the river from where I sit in Virginia last year. Here is Beto on parents and education, cut 13. What if we treated that teacher with the respect that she has earned, that she is owed, that we all want to give her? We don't need to tell her what version of history she is allowed to teach in a classroom. We don't need to scare the parents of those kids before her about something called CRT that I've never heard of before last year. All right, so he's doing the denialism stuff on CRT, which Terry McAuliffe did in his losing campaign in Virginia. He's saying that we, meaning the public, i.e. parents, shouldn't be telling teachers what they can teach, what version of history, and it seems like some teachers would like to teach a very distorted version of history, which is why you get worldviews like those expressed, for example, by LeBron James that we were just discussing. This at least came close, Will, to the Terry McAuliffe playbook, which did not work out well for Democrats in a much bluer place in Virginia. Here's Beto stepping in the same cow pie, if you will, in the state of Texas. And Beto O'Rourke will not be 
the governor of Texas. He's a career loser who's lost his bid for president of the United States for senator from Texas, and he will lose his bid for governor of Texas. He has adopted the most unpopular positions you can imagine, not just CRT and the defense of CRT, as you point out, but literally, literally gun confiscation in the state of Texas. Yes, I think he said, damn right. We're going to come get your AR-15? Hell yes, I believe. Hell yes. I used the wrong curse word. Hell instead of damn. (laughs) We're going to come get your AR-15. So you've got a career loser that takes on the most unpopular positions. He will not be the governor of Texas. But I will tell you, Guy, that Beto O'Rourke represents something much more uh, concerning to me as a Texan. And and that is that the fact that he is currently polling in single digits against Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott, who for his own reasons – has managed to attain some unpopularity in the state of Texas. The state itself, not just its political system, but its culture, needs to be defended. I, of course, am a Texan guy. I love Texas. I love our culture. I think it's unique, and I think it's what helped make it a magnet for population growth, not unlike Florida, but a magnet for population growth over the last, well, you know, better than a decade, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And it's going to need to be fought for. It's going to need to be defended. It's going to need to be defined and championed. If we're not going to have Beto O'Rourke this time, but we want to ensure that we will never have Beto O'Rourke in the future, we're going to have to fight for these principles and these values and these cultures that I think are embodied in Texas and to a larger extent the United States of America. Will, I know I told you that was my last question. Turns out I lied because you were talking about Texas, and I kept thinking of you in a Longhorn shirt. And I remembered last time we talked, there had just been the move to expand the SEC, Texas and OU moving to that conference. Since then, more recently, the Pac-12 blowing up, basically, with the heart of that conference, UCLA, USC, coming to the Big Ten, my conference in the coming years. Is this thing going down to two mega conferences at some point soon? Two and a half? I think you have to have something. There will be some remnants of the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and the ACC that remain relevant. I don't think the SEC and the Big 10 can swallow all of the relevance of college football. So I think you're going to have two and a half to three conferences that define the future. And I can tie this conversation all together because also what has happened since we last spoke was not just Texas and OU's commitment to the SEC and the the demolition of the Pac-12, but Arch Manning has committed to the University of Texas. (laughs) And I will add to that this. This is where I'll tie it together in our conversation about culture. I have a nephew, Guy, who's a top 100 recruit in the 2023 class. He's an offensive lineman from Odessa Permian. Odessa Permian, infamous of Friday Night Lights. And he could have gone anywhere he wanted in the country, Alabama, Texas, Texas A&M. And he knew where his uncle wanted him to go. But He didn't feel it in Austin. He didn't feel the culture, not the program and the coaches and the talent. He loved all that, but the culture. And you know where he did feel it? Where he just committed, where they have developed a culture of faith and family, and they have a coach that wears those values on his sleeve. He committed to Clemson. So his future, along with Clemson's, the ACC's, hey, he has cast his lot with, you know, this culture that you and I are talking about and that I hope to defend and a program who will have to find its way either to the Big Ten or the SEC or relevant third conference, super conference. Yeah, well, I would would bet the SEC for Clemson if that's the parlor game that we're playing. And if your nephew will, for any reason, it just, like, doesn't work out for him with Dabo in Death Valley to Clemson, that's fine. I would love to 
talk to him and have a little chat with him about the wonderful experience that is Northwestern football. It's it's a family. It's close knit. So please keep me posted on that. I'm sure he'll love the ever, weather in Chicago. Yeah, looking. Oh, it's beautiful, especially uh, toward the end of the football season. But you never know with the transfer portal. Just you know, keep me posted, please. Right. Will Kane, host of the Will Kane podcast. You can check that out at foxnewspodcast.com. Also, Fox and Friends weekend co-host. That is six to ten Eastern every Saturday and Sunday on Fox News Channel. We'll always enjoy it. Thanks very much. Thanks, man. It's the Guy Benson Show. Final hour of the program coming up. Larry Kudlow is here next. Stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Thursday happy hour upon us here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com for everything. For the podcast, you can go there as well or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram at Guy Benson Show. And this hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. We actually had some friends in town. From Florida, met them for dinner last night, introduced them to the long drink. They never heard of it. And they tried it, and they were like, we got to take a photo of this can so we can go find it when we get home. And it's all over Florida. It's all over 40 states and counting. TheLongDrink.com. You can check out where they're sold near you as they expand. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. And joining us now is Larry Kudlow, fresh off of his Fox Business Network program, Kudlow, which airs at 4 p.m. Eastern every weekday. That's FBN. Also, former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. Larry, it is always good to talk to you on television, on radio, anywhere. Thank you, Guy. I would like to start with this bill from Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer. It seems like you have to once again revive the old slogan, Save America, Kill the Bill. This bill is less disastrous than Build Back Better in many ways. It's a fraction of the harm that Build Back Better would have done, but it's still awfully bad, Larry. Give us your overall top-line thoughts on what Manchin and Schumer have served up. Well, save America, kill the bill, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, I, look, at, I think that um, this is a tax-and-spend bill. Uh, you're right, the proportions are less than the $5 trillion dollars. But in some sense, in round numbers, this thing's about a trillion-dollar bill. And there's some very harmful provisions in here, especially on the tax side, where they want to put in this 15 percent minimum corporate tax, which will slash profits, uh, particularly on manufacturing companies, but also across the board. But about half of it is on manufacturing and fossil fuels and coal and steel and so forth. Um, that's going to be a killer because it's going to cut back on profits. That means not only will we get less business investments, will we have less productivity, it will also cut down wages. I mean, the dirty little secret here is that corporate taxes 
have the biggest impact on wage earners. Okay, middle class, typical working family, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year. If you don't have any money, if you don't have profits, if you're going to get taxed by Uncle Sam, then you won't have anything left over not only to invest in plant and equipment, but also to invest in your own workforce with higher wages. And the Bidens and Manchin, you know, they talk about this as a loophole. It's not a loophole. We structured the 2017 tax cut uh, guide because um, we wanted people to take the 100 percent immediate expensing uh, to invest in plants and equipment and technology. That was done deliberately. And those uh, companies that did so would have a lower average tax rate than the 21% marginal rate. But, 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 it would make America stronger, grow faster, and provide higher wages. So I think that, I think that provision and the, and the IRS uh, provision, the beast of Washington, um, I think those are the two worst provisions in there, although there's a lot of spending that we could do with that. Well, you also were talking, Larry, just there about the tax increase that Manchin insists is not a tax increase. And I asked Senator McConnell about it yesterday. I've been asking a number of Republicans about it. And they all seem to be kind of mystified that this is the approach that he's taking with his talking points. I mean, you can argue that it's not a tax rate increase on individuals, even though workers and individuals will get hit by it, as the nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation has found. But it is unambiguously a tax increase if you are raising taxes on these corporations. I mean, I just don't know why he thinks he can possibly get away with that. And I also saw that when he was confronted with some of these numbers from JCT, he said, well, there's a Republican side and a Democratic side. And this came from the Republican report. And JCT came out and said that is absolutely not true. This is the nonpartisan analysis of the bill that we put forward. It just kind of feels like he is not just playing very silly, not credible games with language. He's also kind of flailing on the truth. Well, by the way, that joint tax committee stuff, it's the nonpartisan career staff. So it has nothing to do with Republicans or, for that matter, Democrats. They're no friends of supply-siders, but I'm just saying – you know, they basically said uh, wages are going to go down by about 25 percent. Look, part of this, you know, Schumer and Manchin are trying to sell this as a tax loophole. It is not a loophole. It was put in intentionally by law. And right. we all knew full well that companies that took advantage of this 100 percent expensing for investment purposes uh, was going to temporarily lower the average tax rate. but well, And if you raise it, Larry, then it's a tax increase, right? If you raise that tax, it's a tax increase. This isn't that hard. I agree. I mean, there's a lot of phony baloney stuff here um, that is, you know, you can tell they're struggling hard to get this thing done. That's, that's the worst, probably an economic term. But look, you're raising taxes across the board well below $400,000. That came out of the Joint Tax Committee. There's no anti-inflation. There's no inflation reduction uh, impact here. You're going to no, it's the name of the bill, Larry. They called it the name of the bill. It has to be, right? <laughs> well, I call it the George Orwell bill. That's what I call it. Because George Orwell understood well, the great English author, um, how you could mangle language. And that's what they're trying to do. But the other one is the D.C. Swamp Beast called the IRS, okay? This is very bad. Um, they're going to pour in uh, $80 billion, and they're going to hire 87,000 agents. 
and they're going to all go after small businesses. That's all they're going after. Uh, individuals, that's what they're going after. And, Guy, importantly here, you know, when the IRS starts running around the country, remember Lois Lerner, there's going to be an attack on conservative groups, on religious groups, on pro-life groups. This is just what Lois Lerner did until they ran her out of town back in 2013. The IRS is like the Twitter of tax policy. I mean, they think they can decide what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. And I think that's nonsense, utter nonsense. And it's going to be one of the most – if it goes through, I mean, it can't be sc- – they're saying it's going to raise $200, 220000000000 billion. Uh, reconciliation rules will prevent that from going in there. But the point is this is going to be very, very harmful to small businesses and conservative groups. Yeah, and on the actual tax hikes – Beyond what you just described with the IRS getting beefed up with all these new auditors, the actual bona fide tax hikes themselves, we know based on nonpartisan analyses that they disproportionately hit manufacturing, which seems like exactly the wrong thing to do here, among other exactly wrong things that this bill does. Larry, I'm also almost amused by this. I mean, it's a scary bill, so I can't laugh too hard about it because it has a real chance of passing. But you are seeing these Democrats out there and they're – allies saying, look, this is a reduction of inflation. This is also a deficit reducer. And when you actually scratch the surface of those claims, it just completely falls apart, starting on the inflation side, the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever they're calling it. The White House's own best and rosiest forecast from Mark Zandi, the Democrats' favorite economist, He found that maybe under this bill you would get inflation reduced by a third of 1% nine years from now, which is just ludicrous to tout that as some sort of proof that this is an anti-inflation bill when nonpartisan analyses also argue that in the near term, the next year or two, inflation will actually slightly increase under the bill right in the teeth, right in the thick of this horrible inflation that everyone's experiencing. And then on the deficit reduction side, Philip Klein – At National Review, dug into the numbers. CBO put out a report, and the Democrats are saying, see, this is a deficit-reducing bill. But when you actually look at the numbers, as Phil did, roughly 93 percent of the claimed deficit savings will not materialize until after 2026. And I've got a bridge to sell you if you think that's actually going to happen the way Washington works. So it's deficit reduction starting in 2027. 93% of it, and it's inflation reduction, just a microscopic reduction in inflation in 2031. Larry, I mean, who looks at that and says, well, this seems credible? Who actually believes that? Yeah, you know, we don't need this bill, okay? We do not need this (laughs) bill. America would be better off without this bill. And by the way, uh, I mean, the odds favored that they'll jam it through, but it's very important that you know, Republican conservative messaging aimed for the November midterms and that in the individual Senate races and the House races guy, you know, candidates uh, should really put it to their Democratic opponents because the individual provisions of this bill are just terrible. The tax hikes, the IRS, yeah. the well, tax the hikes in the middle of a recession and they're denying it's a recession, but it is one based on the technical definition that we've all used forever. And so you're raising taxes in a recession. You're raising spending in a time of inflation where inflation will actually go up for the first couple of years of this bill happening. You're handing out 
tax credits to the tune of thousands of dollars to rich families up to $300,000 per household to buy electric vehicles that many or most Americans certainly cannot afford these days. I mean, there's just sort of the list goes on and on. There is a target-rich environment here based on the provisions of this bill to come after any Democrat who votes for it. And my guess is almost every single one of them, if not all of them 100 percent on Capitol Hill, will vote for this thing. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the politics here are important because, again, uh, the bill probably passed, but the messaging has to be done to put it to every single Democratic candidate, House, Senate, governor, whatever, uh, whether they be for or against this, because already polling is coming in. I've seen Rasmussen polling. I saw a poll. Uh, we reported it last night. Arizona poll shows overwhelming opposition to it. By the way, Cinema better watch out because she's already underwater. Her disapproval is 11 points higher than her approval. So she's got to be careful here. So I think that's the politics of it. Make the case. You don't raise spending in a virulent recession. You don't raise virulent inflation. You don't raise taxes when you're in a recession. You don't destroy. This just destroys the fossil industry. I mean, there are so many provisions here that would damage all fossil fuels, particularly coal, but also natural gas and oil and refineries. By the way, the EPA is given a lot more authority, statutory authority, to regulate greenhouse gases. Um, it flies in the face of the Supreme Court decision. It doesn't go back. It won't. It won't. It won't permit the clean, so-called Clean Power Act uh, that Obama tried to pass. But basically, it gives the EPA even more authority to regulate all greenhouse gases. So this is a real body blow to uh, fossil fuels. Once well, again. and Manchin, <laughs> Manchin would say, Larry, well, I got these concessions and I got these assurances on fossil fuels, on permitting, on pipelines. They're going to give that to me down the line here, but they promised. And McConnell and Cornyn yesterday on this show said they would not be surprised at all if those just magically disappeared once they get Manchin on the record voting for all this spending, all the tax increases. The back half of the deal might never actually show up. Briefly, Larry, before I let you go, I don't know if you saw this, but you and I have talked about Biden and 2024 a number of times on your show. Carolyn Maloney, a member of the House, from New York, a Democrat. She had suggested that Biden won't run again in 2024. She then showed up. I guess someone called her. She got a phone call. She showed up on CNN earlier to apologize to Biden. She was looking straight into the camera doing this weird apology. Here's what it sounded like in Cut 17. Mr. President, I apologize. I want you to run. I happen to think you won't be running. But when you run or if you run, I will be there 100 percent. You have deserved it. You are a great president, and thank you for everything you've done for my state and all the states and all the cities in America. Thank you, Mr. President. Kind of like hostage video vibes there from Carolyn Maloney. She says, I happen to think you won't be running, but if you do, I'll be with you 100 percent. I'm so sorry. You're amazing. Just, you know, all praise be to you. That was kind of strange, wasn't it? (laughs) Well, I know Carolyn very well. Um, I'm sure she hates the fact that Biden may be at the head of the ballot uh, in a couple of years. Look, she's she's trying to make a statement. Um, She's trying to pull away from him. But it's all silliness. Uh, You've got this far left congressional district in New York. Carolyn doesn't know what she's doing. You know, it's funny. It's like it's like Joe Manchin, who is a friend of mine. And I spoke to him earlier in this week about his bill. Uh, You know, you listen to these arguments. 
that Joe Manchin is making, when you listen to stuff that people like Caroline Maloney is, makes, uh, is saying, they're like trying not to be in favor of what they're in favor of. I mean, that's really the bottom line here. It's like Joe Manchin calls me, and it almost sounded like he was asking for forgiveness, <laughs> but he sort of I like, had to do it. And, you know, just on this other point, um, Dan Sullivan, Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska, has a much better bill that we use the Congressional Review Act to overturn all the uh, anti-permitting provisions in the uh, Biden executive branch and his executive orders. And they need to vote on that because he's using the Congressional Review Act. He must have a vote. And 51 votes would overturn all of the mess that the Bidens have made to stop it permitting. By the way, not only uh, oil and gas and refineries and pipelines, but also just roads and highways and bridges and tunnels. So that's going to be a very interesting vote. They have to allow that vote. And if a vote gets through, it only needs 51 votes. I mean, Joe Manchin should vote for this. Then permitting will be greatly improved. They will overturn the Biden executive order. Well, we shall see if that comes to pass, if Schumer will let it on the floor, whether there is another round of betrayal to come. We'll be watching it. Check out Larry Kudlow and his show every day on Fox Business Network. He's the king of FBN, number one on that network, 4 p.m. daily Eastern time. Also, former director of the National Economic Council in the Trump administration. Larry, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this headline. The singer Demi Lovato, who got a bunch of attention and a news cycle all to themselves. I don't know if that's even the right way to say that. When she decided to become they and them and her pronouns because she was gender fluid or non-binary or some combination of that. Well, now they, or should I say she, has another news cycle on this because she's back to her. So they have told us that we can call them she and her again because I guess her energy has changed. She said for a while she would go to the bathroom and look at the men's room and the woman's room and felt like she wasn't really a woman. So it was they, them. And it's very awkward to phrase things that way, to call a single person they or them. I'm a believer in doing unto others and and trying to be kind. I think sometimes it gets ridiculous. And now she has toggled back to she and her for now. It might become them again based on her energy and her vibes down the line. I don't know. And I think at some point, a lot of people say enough is enough. They want to be nice. They want to be polite. But just back and forth, it's like, no. Sorry, not sorry, as she or they might say. But another Demi Lovato news cycle. So I guess she's gotten the attention that she wants. Congrats. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour returns after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. We are back on the happy hour on this Thursday. Thanks for being here. Earlier in the show, we caught up with our friend and colleague twice over at townhall.com and Fox News, Katie Pavlich, talking news of the day in politics, but also about her brand new Fox Nation show that looks pretty awesome. Here's part of that discussion with Katie Pavlich. What can you tell folks about this new show at Fox Nation? Hey, Guy. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it. Of course. 
show to talk about the news of the day in politics, but I was able to get away for four different weekends in different parts of the country to uh, showcase these lodges, to get to know the wildlife, the people, the owners of these places. So it's, you know, we went to a bunch of different spots to figure out, you know, what was interesting and unique about each different location. We were in Louisiana, Oregon, Wyoming, Montana, and it was just really great for me because, as you know, I grew up hunting and camping with my family, and uh, this was a great opportunity to kind of push together, you know, kind of the glamping aspect of staying in a nice luxury lodge. And if, you know, you're not into the outdoor part of it, maybe you'd rather stay inside. You can do cooking lessons or go to the spa, or if you want to get, get out and do some ice fishing or some horseback riding, maybe some alligator hunting, uh, you can do that. So it was just a really great time and opportunity, and I loved it. And it was nice to be able to highlight the unique conservation efforts each one of these lodges and their owners have put into their property, you know, their private land. Um, the, the place we went to in Wyoming is called Three Forks Ranch, and it's actually the largest private restoration of a river in the history of the country. So it was just really interesting to see all the different aspects of these places that offer wonderful vacations for families. And although they are grandiose, they are very welcoming and uh, enjoy having people back time and time again. Well, you should bring me next time and you can do all the outdoor stuff and I will happily be at the spa and at the bar. And maybe maybe a cooking class doesn't sound too bad. I think that's a very fair division of labor, if you will, on our next uh, joint vacation at one of these places. How did you pick these four locations? Because there's beautiful spots all over the country. How do you narrow it down to these four? Well, I think it was really difficult. So I had a great team of producers who scoured the country for the four best places we could go to for the first season, hopefully crossing our fingers that maybe there'll be a second one. Um, but we really wanted to take a look at different parts of the country and different you know, aspects of these lodges. So they're all very different from each other. You know, Louisiana was very different from Oregon. Louisiana was in a swamp, uh, had a different kind of Cajun history. Uh, We were hunting alligators, which are overpopulated in that area, whereas in Highland Hills, we were hunting on property that used to be used for farming and agriculture and now is used for upland bird hunting, and they've restored the property there for that use, and they work with the state uh, to kind of manage you know, the populations there. So it really was just a matter of finding a, a place that had a luxury lodge with these amazing accommodations for people who may not be necessarily hunters, um, but also to accommodate those who are in families where people like to do different things. So lots of different outdoor activities. You know, in Louisiana, we weren't just alligator hunting. We got to take a sunset cruise and have a nice glass of wine while the sunset, where the sun went down. So all these different places are, you know, in the theme, obviously, of luxury lodging and outdoor lifestyle. Um, but each one is, is different enough from each other that people will be interested in watching them all. That full interview with Katie Pavlich and all of today's show available for free on our podcast, available at GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast. No charge to you on demand right after the show is over. Before the show ends, though, we've got the home stretch. Producer Christine has another get-rich-quick scheme. We will review that and weigh in right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Almost Friday. 
I'll be doing the Friday edition of the program from Tennessee. Nashville tomorrow will be in town for a wedding. Looking forward to that. But for now, it's our final segment, and I remind you, you can listen to all of our segments for free on demand on our podcast. If you missed anything today, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast, it's the entire show each and every day. Follow us on social at GuyBensonShow. And I look down at my rundown, which is prepared daily by producer Christine when she's here, and I see that our topic for the home stretch is called Let's Play Cookie Roulette. Guy gets to pick between two stories he hasn't heard yet. Two crazy stories, she adds. Option one, Cookie's latest get-rich scheme. Option two, Cookie's adventure in Times Square last night. I shudder at both of these topics. And then door number three, I guess, is both. Let's go with both. Christine, what happened in Times Square? Did it involve a plush costume, hot dog or otherwise? No, but it did involve some sort of character. Um, Do you remember, do you recall our home stretch last night where we spoke about me possibly getting a tattoo? Yes. And do you remember what I wanted, like why I wanted the tattoo? You wanted angel wings uh, to honor your deceased father and your tragically deceased former pony, I believe. No, definitely not about the pony. But, yeah, we'll go with, with the father angle. I Wait, that, you told me that, right? I'm not making that up. I never said I was honoring Carousel. You told no, no, me that. But, no, no, no. You you did tell us about your dad, though. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, I'm like, I did not make that no, up. I no. may have embellished the Carousel thing a little bit because it would be one angel's wing for each. But, okay, I, just for the record for the audience, I did not make up that you wanted a tattoo to honor your father. That is a thing that you told us. Okay, now I'm getting worried. What happened in Times Square? So, well, first, I had, uh, the show was ending, and I had opened my phone, and I was looking at um, somebody's Instagram that I follow, and just randomly, she was playing some Instagram game where you, like, tell her what to post, and she posts a picture if she could find it, and it it was a picture of her wrist with angel wings on it, and it's it said, your first tattoo. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. We just ended the show, and I just spoke about that. But okay, like, you know, I believe in signs. That's strange. But okay. I'm walking through Times Square. Hang on. Just just to clarify what you just said, you said you believe in signs, mm-hmm. not science. I, I believe in science as well, but I believe mm. in signs. Signs. From okay, above. so this might have been a sign mm-hmm. on your phone. Okay, so then you're walking to the bus. Mm-hmm. And I am cutting through Times Square to get to Port Authority. And I have my headphones in, but I'm not listening to music. My head lately has been on a swivel because I am terrified I'm going to get stabbed in the back right now. Um, we can talk about that another day. So um, another crazy story to add this to the list on Cookie Roulette. That's not really crazy because that that could be real. But I hear a woman as I'm walking through say, ma'am. I just have to say, if you're worried about getting stabbed in the back, maybe you shouldn't stab people like Weeping Wyatt in the back when he just tries to book you for a five-minute segment. But go on. You hear a woman. You've got your headphones in, but they're playing nothing. Is that like a fake-out? You want people Mm -hmm. to think that you're listening to music, but you're really attuned to your surroundings? 100%. Uh Uh-huh. I called Wyatt yesterday. The the criminals. Talking to him about my fear about being stabbed recently. Anyway. I'm walking through, and I hear some woman go, ma'am, ma'am, I need to talk to you. Ma'am. 
And I said, I turned around. I'm like, is that me? Like, there's hundreds of thousands of people here. But I felt like she was speaking to me, but I kept walking. And all of a sudden, I feel someone tap me, and I turn around, and it's this man. And he goes, hey, I'm sorry to bother you. He's like, I don't want to scare you. He's like, some woman over there is trying to get your attention. And I just wanted you to know because I know you have your headphones in. And I said, okay, thanks. And I turn around, and she's walking towards me. So I walk up to her, and she says to me, she's like, I know you're not going to believe this, but I am a psychic. And she said, I- Dan, see, this is why Bobby and I got into a fight last night. Dan's laughing. And she said to You can't see me because I'm in D.C. and you're in New York, but my head is buried in my hands as soon as the word psychic. Well, you're going to feel really bad in about two seconds. Am I? Yes. Okay. And she says, have I done a reading for you before? And I said, no, I don't think so. And she goes, well, I have a message from your father. And I said, what? And she said, I have a message from your father. She's like, if you just follow me over to the corner where I'm seated, she's like, I want to give you a reading. And I said, oh, my God. I said, well, I don't know if I believe you. I said, that's very strange that you specifically said my father. But I said, here's the deal. If I walk through tomorrow and I, you find me or I find you, I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to do a reading. And she said, deal, because I have a message for you. So now I'm walking to the bus and I am all of a sudden I feel physically ill. I feel like something came over me and I'm I'm starting to like shake. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, should I turn around? Dan, please stop laughing. Um, Should I turn around and go back? Like, I really felt like something was telling me like this woman was legit. I kept Heather, up- was this a fr- was she offering you a freebie out of the goodness of her heart, a very important message? Or was this come over here and pay me? Well, we didn't get into specifics of money. Oh, I have a guess. I have a guess. And so I get to the bus, and now I'm, like, really freaking out. And my husband comes – he's online with me because we both take the bus together sometimes. And we sit down, and he goes, oh, God, what's the matter? He's like, your face. And I I tell him the story thinking he's going to be like, we have to get off this bus right now. We have to go find her. He just, like, burst into laughter. Like, just shake – not even realizing that I'm visibly – physically upset thinking oh my gosh is my dad trying to come through to me like everything that was so weird the whole day how we spoke about it on air how i saw the angel wings on instagram like there are signs everywhere and did i just miss my opportunity so i called wyatt today to tell him the story and then um when i was grabbing my lunch i ran outside and i got cash just in case like i'm gonna go through again today and if dan you have to stop laughing Wyatt is also just howling over here. I'm keeping it together out of some respect, but please finish the story. This is why Bobby and I got into a fight last night. Bobby's like, obviously, you're getting scammed. He's like, it was a 50-50 chance. Like, someone says a message. I'm like, but she said mm-hmm. my father. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you, Christine. He's like, but this is crazy that you're actually going to do this. And I said, well, if she is there tomorrow, meaning tonight, I'm going through with it. I'm going to sit down in the middle of Times Square and see what she has to say. And if it costs me like 10 or 20 bucks, so be it. What if she says something to me that's real? I I don't know. Just don't you think that all those things in one day together. Now, wait a second. Hold on. You just said why it's laughing. I told him this story this afternoon and he 
did not laugh. He said he had chills and that I should definitely share this on air. I thought yeah, he, he knows good content. He knows good content when he hears it. But he didn't he didn't say it like a joke. He said he had chills well, and he said he would even call in well, tomorrow on his day off to follow uh, up. Yeah, he's having a dandy time right now. Just doubled over with laughter. And that's interesting that he would actually call in on a day off. Imagine doing something like that for the show, Christine. I know that's it's a stretch for some of us. But here's my thing. If all three of your quote-unquote best friends and your husband all think this is ridiculous, does that influence your thinking at all given what you know about yourself? Like do a little bit of self-awareness and like a little reflection here. This is someone – Asking you basically for money in Times Square by saying that she has an urgent message from your father. How many people do you think she uses that exact line on on any given day, even within one hour as she tries to make money in Times Square? First of all, before we continue, I'm not going to speak any more about this until you say something to Dan about the laughing. It has to stop. As the host of the show, I just need to pull rank here, and I just need to say your laughter is appropriate. You are right to laugh. You are right to laugh at Cookie. All right, Christine, your next thing that you wanted to address. I've been to psychics before. Remember, I just went this past winter when I felt like my life was, you know, not in control and I wasn't sure where my path was going. She never brought up my dead father. So who's to say? Did she even say dead? No. Well, no, oh. but obviously she was she... really she's like, hey, there's a human being who has two parents. Why don't I say there's a message from one of them and either they're deceased or they're estranged or they haven't seen each other in a while. There's a good chance one of those things might be true. And she looks like a good mark. Maybe she'll fork over some cash so I can tell her some BS and make some money. Well, first of all, if she had a message and she's a psychic, obviously, I understand she's speaking to somebody that has passed. Oh, not necessarily. Um, Yeah, I'm going to go with yes. No, it could be someone you haven't spoken to in a while. You're estranged. There's a, a couple different options. But go on. She picked me. I mean, she wasn't. No, and and, many, and then, then you walked off and felt physically ill and all the things. And the second you were out of earshot, she ran up to some other person saying, I have a message from your mother. Come over here. Come over to my little box. And uh, do you have cash? I don't take credit cards. That was the next person that she very specially chose. And then the next person. And then the next person. That's the scam. I just want to say one last thing. And then I'm not, I'm done. Because I don't – this was something that really physically and mentally took a toll on me. And you guys, first but of all – A I, lot of things do. You, you take a lot of things very, very dramatically. Yes? No. No. Oh, oh. Fact check. Pants on fire, 18 Pinocchios on fire. Let me just end with this. First okay. of all, I'm really mad at Wyatt right now because he really <laughs> made it seem to me on the phone he had chills, that it was crazy, that we should definitely talk about this. He's like, oh, wow, Christine, wow, yeah, definitely tell that story. Whoa. Number two. I'm going. If she is in my path tonight, I'm going to sit down and talk to her. And okay. Can I make a suggestion? Yes. If it's really meant to be in the stars or whatever, take a different route. 
walk a slightly different route through Times Square. And if she finds you, then go ahead and do it and report back. But if it's the exact same time and the exact same spot, there's nothing unique or weird or special or cosmic about that. All right, I could do that. Okay. So the other topic here was your get-rich scheme. Is it to become a fake psychic in Times Square to target people like you? I think you, you might make a lot of money. My energy is just depleted right now. This is a lot. Mm. So, okay. again. Well, let's, let's, hold, let's hold the get-rich scheme conversation for another home stretch. Wyatt, by the way, wants to say something here. Wyatt? Yeah, I just need to break my silence. Um, Christine, I, I will say I was laughing, but I was laughing at just how everyone else was reacting to it. I, I do think that there, this, there could be something there. I think if you meet up with this lady today, you need to ask a few more questions of like confirming that she is talking to your father before you give her any money. And then I also think guys might be right about this as a scam. There's a, there's a really good chance that's, that's what's going on here. So I think we need to do a Guy Benson Show investigation and get a camera crew to follow this person through Times Square and see who else their victims are for this. Okay, let's just – we have to go. Christine, if you take a different route and she finds you, then I guess that'll be our home stretch tomorrow. We have to do a factor follow-up on this tomorrow one way or another. And for now, everyone can stop laughing because the show's over. And we've got to run. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place. Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.